Turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 14. And uh, as we turn there, I have been in the last uh, couple of weeks treating uh, the book of Revelation somewhat thematically. And what I mean by that is uh, kind of grouping some of the chapters together around the common theme that seems to be in those chapters and uh, dwelling on the, the nature of God's uh, goodness, of His uh, kindness, of His uh, covenant-keeping nature. And now this morning in uh, Revelation chapters 14, 15, and 16, as we look at these uh, final outpouring uh, of judgments um, and see particularly the wrath of God. Uh, I've titled this morning's message, The Tragedy of Being on the Wrong Side of God. And the scripture says it is a fearful thing, an awesome thing, uh, to fall into the hands of an angry God. And oftentimes, particularly in our culture today, we love to talk about the love of God. And God is a God of love. And, and if you examine the Scriptures, uh, you find that uh, although theologians would take issue with trying to prioritize His attributes, because He is all of who He is, infinitely, at the same time. And if all of his attributes are infinite, then no one of them can be greater than the other. And yet, on the other side of the coin, as God reveals his heart to us, he reveals himself as a God of love. And he demonstrates that from the beginning to the end, that he, he is slow to anger, that He is patient with us, that He gives us ample time to repent and to move in His direction, that He gives His goodness, He makes His rain to, sh to fall on the just and the unjust, and His sun to shine, which is a way of saying He gives provision uh, equally to the just and to the unjust, to the godly and to the unrighteous. And he explains himself as, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God made us in his nature. He made us in his image. Uh, he implanted within us his own uh, character, as it were, uh, that we might reflect him. And even in spite of our sin, God's love for us remains consistent. But one of the things that we often fail to realize is that there are necessary corollaries to love. And among them are holiness, righteousness, truth, and justice. Love demands these things. Love demands that there be a holiness and that there be righteousness and that there be justice. Um, how can you love someone and tolerate 
injustice and inequity in their lives toward them. And, and how can you uh, ignore those who would abuse and misuse the righteous? You can't do it. And if God loves all human beings, on the one hand, but there are those who have turned to Him and trusted Him, and there are those who have rejected Him and rebelled against Him, and there is a, a war going on of uh, opposition between those who follow the Lord and those who do not. And I don't mean that that's a war that goes on between flesh and blood. Paul tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Unbelievers and ungodly people are inspired and motivated by demonic powers. And they come against us um, because they have aligned themselves with the powers of darkness. And it is Satan who ultimately hates us. And yet, God cannot look at that kind of persecution and that inequity and wink his eye at it and say, well, I love everybody, so I'm not going to punish anyone. A necessary corollary to his love is his wrath and his justice. He must deal with the unrighteous. Some people say, why can't God just let everyone go to heaven? Why doesn't he just open the doors and uh, kind of let everyone be there? You know what heaven would be like if God let everyone in? It would be like this. Now. You know? We wouldn't have world trade centers in heaven, but somebody would be bombing the new Jerusalem. It would be like we have now. Heaven can only be heaven in the absence of sin. That's the only way it can be good and pure and full of light and bright. And it's actually a choice. Uh, sometimes people say, why does God send people to hell? And the answer to that is, God does not send people to hell. People choose to go there. They do not go to hell because they have not received Jesus Christ. That makes God a bigot. They go to hell because they are sinners. Because they are pursuing a life of sin that is in rebellion to God. And there's nowhere left for them to be except ultimately in the lake of fire. Which Revelation describes at some length. And so God must deal with the ungodly. He has to... Uh, vent his wrath on those who have not accepted his grace. And this is one of the most difficult things, I think, for people in, in our culture, in our time, to comprehend. There are other cultures and places in the world where it's not so hard. In fact, the emphasis may even be flipped. They're, they're more uh, focused on the wrath of God than on the love of God. But people in our country just have a hard time with this. They don't understand why God can't just be some sort of uh, lovey-dovey, soft, gushy teddy bear that just uh, lets anybody do whatever they want. 
and believe whatever they want and act however they want. And, and in the end, he's going to be kind and, and just take care of everybody and everybody's just going to live happily ever after. That is not the case. And so what we find as we come to Revelation chapter 14 is that John begins to see a vision of the final judgment of God upon this age of humanity. And that vision is a vision of his ultimate wrath as he brings judgment to the ungodly. Now, I want to remind you that as we consider the seven bowls this morning, that we have been looking at three sets of seven. We started out with seven seals, and then we went to seven trumpets, and now we're looking at seven bowls of wrath. And I had given you a chart, a diagram, several weeks back that showed that John was looking at these things and as it came closer to the end, kind of dialing in the microscope, so to speak, taking the closer magnified look as we move toward the end. So that the first four seals really are essentially humanity just being humanity. It's just more of what we've been experiencing already, where the unrighteous kind of take advantage of the righteous, and they uh, push their agenda, and we see those seals being broken as economic disaster and wars and rumors of wars, and... Uh, famine and all those kinds of things that begin to unfold. And that's not anything different than the world has experienced heretofore. It's kind of what happens when human beings take control and vie for power. They, they just make a mess. And those first four seals kind of represent that. But as we come to the fifth and sixth and seventh seal, that contains the seven trumpets. So as we move toward the end of that period of early uh, judgment, we move into a section where the trumpets are sounded. And in the sounding of the trumpets, we have a mixture both of ungodly human beings reaping what they have sown, combined with God beginning to express His judgment. So there's a continuum. Starts out with human beings reaping what they sowed, mainly on their own. God's taking the stops away. He's tearing down the fences. He's kind of letting people do what people do. The trumpets reflect a mixture of human selfishness, self-centeredness, and ungodly behavior mixed with God's judgments. And then as we come to the uh, fifth and sixth and seventh trumpets, we dial in a little further in magnification and we see the bowls. So that I presented to you in the chart that the sixes 
and the sevens more or less line up. They kind of catch up with one another. And in these seven bowls, we have purely being poured out the wrath of God on ungodly people. So we start out with man's inhumanity to man, and we go to God's judgments mingled with man's inhumanity, and then we go to God's wrath being visited on the unrighteous. And as we look at chapter 14, it's a preview of this whole panorama that we're about to to witness. And you've noticed that that's John's... um, reflection of the vision that he receives. He kind of pauses to give us an overview. And then he backs up and he dials it in even further and gives us the specifics. So, the first thing he says is, I looked, verse 14, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we know that Jesus is not going to appear in the flesh on Mount Zion until the very end. So John is saying, I'm giving you this overview, and this is what I saw. Okay, this is kind of like the culmination of this. And the 144,000, remember, is a number that essentially means the full, complete picture. It's the whole church. It's the church from the Old Testament. It's the church from the New Testament. It's the church through the ages. It's all the people of God together represent this 144,000. And they're standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion with Him. And they have the Father's name written on their foreheads. I want to take you back and remind you that in Revelation chapter 7, we are told that before the trumpets begin to sound that uh, don't do anything, the Scripture says, until those who belong to God have the seal of God placed on their forehead. In other words, all the supernatural and angelic powers will be able to distinguish the people of God from those who are not. Now, I remember hearing a story one time that uh, was true. It was told uh, by a missionary who was dealing with uh, uh, like a shaman or a witch doctor who um, was coming against the number of people in the village and using his powers and his uh, you know abilities and whatever to, to do one thing or another. And um, this fellow thought he would go and investigate. And uh, as he... Uh, kind of thought he would slip into one of the meetings and see what this guy was up to and what he was doing. Uh, It's like this witch doctor stopped all the activity and he said, what are you doing here? And it's like he got singled out. He said, what do you mean, what am I doing here? And he said, I see the cross on your forehead. You do not belong here. Get out of here. And... No one else saw a cross on his forehead. Um, I don't know if that's what this is going to be like. I don't know if that was a situation that was designed for that moment to protect this fellow. 
But what we do recognize is that God's people are going to be marked in a way on their forehead. Rather than the mark of the beast, they'll have the mark of God on their forehead. And that mark will distinguish them. And all the angelic hosts and all the demonic hosts and and everyone of supernatural perspective will be able to determine who the people of God are. And so uh, John goes on to describe this scene of the 144,000 who have remained holy and pure throughout this whole period. And then um, in verse 6 he says, and I want you to look at this because this is so cool to me. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, chapter 14, 6, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is the last call. And God is still reaching out to the ungodly. He's still reaching out to unbelievers. He's still giving them one more chance. I mean, these bowls are about ready to be poured out. It's going to get ugly. And people without Christ are going to be in deep trouble. And so this angel goes and proclaims the eternal gospel. Fear God and give Him glory because you're about to be judged. Jonah showed up in Nineveh with a message like that and the Ninevites, that ungodly people, repented. And sometime you ought to look up the Ninevites on, on a web search. You ought to see what kind of people they were. Listen, there is, there is no modern day torture, ungodliness, Murder and mayhem, Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, name the people. They can't hold a candle to the Ninevites. Those people were wicked in the extreme, and their abuse of human beings was amazing at the horrors they would inflict for the pure fun of it. And they repented. When Jonah showed up with the gospel. And Jonah said, that's why I didn't want to go. I knew that you're a merciful God and that they would turn. And I didn't want them to turn. I wanted them to have your judgment. Now, God is once again calling out. (laughs) And the sad thing is, they don't repent. There's no turning. They're stubborn. Then there's a preview of the fall of Babylon, and we're going to look at that in some detail beginning in chapter 17, 18, and 19, uh, what Babylon means and and the the nations of the world and and kind of like the world capital and how Babylon falls. But here's here's a preview. And the third angel followed and said in a loud voice, verse 9, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink 
the wine of God's fury. Note the, uh, the, the description of God's wrath, which will be for, poured full strength in the cup of His wrath. They will be tormented in burning sulfur, and the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image. But notice in verse 13, right at the end, those who follow the Lord, they will rest from their labor. Do you ever get tired? Does that ever happen to you? you ever get really, really tired? We were kind of chuckling this morning at a little one that had laid down on the floor up here before the service and was just kind of rolling around on the floor. And <laughs> Sharon said to me, don't you wish sometimes you could just lay down on the floor like that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do wish that, but then I have to get up. And that's, <clears throat> that's really hard. But, you know, that feeling when you just need to rest, There's tired, right? And then there's tired. And then there's that weariness. For those who follow the beast, there will never be rest. They will never have a moment of respite. Never. But for those who follow the Lamb, they will rest from their labor. And we will rest in Him forever. No more drained energy, no more exhaustion, no more weariness, no more tired. We sleep, it will be for fun. I could have fun sleeping sometimes. And then notice in verse 14, I looked and before me there was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sickle in his hand. And another angel came and called out in a loud voice, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. You remember what Jesus said about the fellow, the enemy, who went in and sowed tares among the wheat? And and the disciples, uh, you know, asked the question, should we, or the workers said, should we pull the tares out? He said, no, it will uproot the wheat as well. Let them grow together till the end of the age. And then in the harvest, they will be separated. Here's the end. And the people of the earth will be harvested. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered the grapes, which represent in this case the ungodly, and they were thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. Now the imagery there is intentional, so that uh, not that we would associate grapes with the fruit of the vine, but we would associate grapes with the treading of the winepress. 
That's the imagery John sees before him. And he wants us to realize that the ungodly are going to be trampled beneath the feet of God in the winepress of his wrath. And it says, The blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's 184 miles. And that's about four feet deep. In fact, it covers the entire land of Israel as it is today. God will deal with the enemies of Israel in the final battle. And the blood that flows from the battle will fill the land beyond imagination. And when I showed you Abram's boundaries of the Holy Land, that comes when Jesus establishes his kingdom. But at this moment, in this time, uh, the, the judgment of God comes to the ungodly, and the blood that flows from their disaster and demise will fill the land of Israel with blood four feet deep. Can you, just, can you just picture that? As one commentator said, this is the stuff that nightmares are made of. This is horrible stuff. And then, I saw in heaven, verse chapter 15, another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, because with them God's wrath is complete. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And the saints sing the song of Moses. And then in chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 15 is basically a preparation for the bowls. In chapter 16, the first angel, verse 2, poured his bowl on the land. Ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. Remember before when it was a third? Now it's everything. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify Him. Now here's an amazing thing. Everything in the sea has died. Everything in the rivers and springs has, has died. Um, the world is falling apart, and now the sun, uh, in a supernatural way, is scorching all the people who are, not follow, who are following the beast. And they have this intense burning, and they ought to wake up and see what's happening, and instead, they curse God, who has the authority and the power. They still don't want to give up. They still want to overthrow God and be God themselves. They will not stop. It's just amazing. And the fifth angel poured his bowl out, 
And the entire kingdom of the beast was plunged into darkness. And there's something about this darkness that is deep and penetrating. I suspect that the darkness that comes is without the moon, without the sun, without artificial light. It's the kind of darkness that you can't see your hand in front of your face. You have no orientation. You can't see a thing. And there's something about it that is is painful, and, and, and their pains and sores uh, intensify in this blackness. And the sixth angel pours out his bowl, and the river Euphrates dries up. And the reason for this is to give a clear passage for the armies of the nations to come against Israel. It's like, who can, we, who can we get even with for all of this pain we've endured? Let's go after Israel. It's their God that's causing the trouble. Let's go get them. And God moves away the impediments to the progress so that the nations of the world can come against Israel. And verse 15 Notice the significance of this. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and shamefully exposed. They gathered the kings together to the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. This is the end. But notice that it is at this moment that Jesus said, I will come like a thief in the night. It is at this moment that he comes like a thief in the night. It is at this moment that those who have been waiting and watching and prepared for his coming are anticipating him, longing for his deliverance. And he says, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one that stays awake and remains vigilant and alert and attentive. And when the seventh angel pours out his bowl, God says, because there's no one left in the throne room, by the way. You go back and read the passage. And during the judgment of the bowls, every living creature is driven out of the throne room. God alone is speaking from the throne. He says, it is done. This is the end. One of the things that we need to keep in our minds, no matter how unbalanced things may look today, no matter how prosperous the wicked may appear, no matter how much suffering the righteous may endure. No matter how unequal it seems to be and unfair it appears, in this day, friends, we will be so very glad that we have put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Because those who haven't will suffer the wrath of God in a way that is hard even to imagine. The torment, the pain, the suffering, 
And that's only the beginning. Because after this comes the judgment. And after the judgment, the lake of fire that burns forever. And, and their, their worm, their heart, their soul never dies. Their conscience, their memory never dies. And they suffer forever in the lake of fire for all of eternity with no hope of escape, no hope of redemption, no hope of recovery, no hope of release, no hope of anything changing forever, they will suffer in the fires of judgment in the lake of fire. Don't worry about it now. Don't worry about how unfair life may seem. God is keeping score. God will reward the righteous. And He will punish the wicked. And the day will come when His wrath is fully vented. And we, we need to understand this. And we need to, to be able to say as much as we love and desire for people to come uh, to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we need to say, there will come a day when your opportunity is gone. There will come a day when you cannot make this decision. Not the dropsies. Those who stiffen their neck, being often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off without remedy. Let us remember that our God is a loving God. But He is also a God of wrath. And the two go hand in hand. Father, I pray this morning that this message would sober us, that it would also take away some of our fretting and our worry. Look how the wicked prosper. Look, Lord, they're gaining so much and I'm suffering. Look, they're getting away with everything. No, they're not. They're not. And what a privilege it is, Lord, to see it and to know it and to be one of Your children, safe in the blood of Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What a blessing to know that we have all of eternity to enjoy you and to enjoy each other and to enjoy the bounty of heaven. And this life is but a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's fleeting. It's short. And whatever we suffer in this time is not to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us when we have envied the wicked and keep our eyes on Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.